Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. We are continuing our study on the typical significance of the Bible, the fact that the Old Testament typifies the New, and how they are intertwined together because of that is certainly another uh, proof of divine authorship. Hebrews 10.7, that's kind of been our foundation verse. Anybody want to read that? And then John 5.39 also. Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So our our point being the last few weeks, who is the Bible about? It's about Jesus. And of course, we talked about this for several weeks. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And again, I want to remind you that the stories that we read in the Old Testament were actual events with real people uh, that, that took place in real time. Uh, so that is true, without a doubt. But also, a lot of what we read in the Old Testament was typical uh, prefiguration what goes on in the, the New Testament. And again, the Bible is about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Scriptures, uh, and it's interesting, God works this way as progressive revelation and he begins with some pictorial uh, representation. Uh, then we see some very particular prophecies. And in fact, about 300 about for Jesus Christ. And then when the fullness of time came, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into our world. And of course, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, uh, talks about that. How in previous times, God spoke in different ways, in various manners. But now, in the last day, he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And a thing we've been kind of sharing for the last few weeks is the fact uh, it certainly does this, doesn't do any good for actually it harms our knowledge of Christ if we don't see uh, the typical part of the Old Testament. Because again, Jesus said the Scriptures testify of Him. We've looked at several areas already. We looked at the Pentateuch, of course the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, and even the laws, the rituals, they point to Jesus Christ. And then we looked at the fact that even the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the church at Rome and the church at Corinth, he reminded them that God's word, the Old Testament, was for our admonition, for our warning. So he, if you will, brings the Old Testament into the New Testament. By the way, did Jesus come to do away with the law? No, he came to fulfill the law. So again, we see it coming together there. And then we looked at God's order uh, in the work of creation, but also new creation. Uh, when God created, the, when the earth was created, it was without form and void, and God began to move. Spirit of God began to move on the face of the deep. God began to speak things into existence. And again, a, a picture of our lives until, until Jesus comes, until God begins to move on our lives. So we see it there uh, in the old and the new. And then we also found out when Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God offer, do for them? For what reason? Because they had sinned. Not the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so we see that in the Old Testament. Again, uh, God had, had to provide a way to take away their sins, and he did it by 
uh, the shedding of the blood of an animal. Now, if we're going to have our sins taken away, who has to do it? God does. And, of course, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And then we looked at Noah, uh, his, his ark, the Noah's ark in particular. And in that day, uh, how many arks were there? Just one. And if you want to be saved, you had to be on what? On that ark, okay? How many saviors are there today? Just one. And we only save through Jesus Christ. And then uh, in Exodus, we looked at the day at the time when God uh, delivered Israel from Egypt. Let's go ahead and read verse 13 and 14 again of Exodus chapter 1. Uh, thank you, Dan. Now, if you know this, this little bit about Exodus in chapter 1, uh, you're going to find as you read chapter 1 that the Pharaoh who knew Joseph had died and, and passed, had gone away and things have changed. And now the Egyptians are afraid of the Israelites. And, of course, uh, they, made, they made life terrible uh, for the Israelites. And what did the Jews want? Freedom. And who, pro- who provided it? God did. He did it through Moses. But it was God who provided that freedom. Now, also, you and I, before we were saved, uh, we were living in our world without God, without hope. And uh, we weren't making bricks without straw as the Israelites were. But we were in bondage to Satan. We were in bondage to sin. And what could we do on our own to get free? Not a thing. You know, you, you simply couldn't do it. And, and the sad thing is, if we were be allowed to go throughout life that way, we would face the judgment of God. Thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? The blood that takes away our sins. And because of Christ, we have now been redeemed by almighty power. Colossians 1.13. Thank you, Phyllis. Paul is talking about where we used to be, uh, the power of darkness, and we have been translated now into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Only who could do that for us? Only God. And of course, he does it through Christ. Could we do it on our own? Absolutely not. It took the power of God. But also, like the Israelites in the days of the Exodus, once they left Egypt, there was a journey ahead of them. And, of course, we know because of the disobedience, it took them 40 years when it should have taken 11 days. But nonetheless, that was a long, hard, difficult journey before they reached the promised land. And so it was a wilderness. It was a tough land, if you will. But also understand, as we walk through this life, we are on a journey. No matter when we were saved, we're in the process of being saved. And so once you're saved, life is always easy. Dan, are you disagreeing with me? Yeah, I guess you're right. It's not, and we know it's not. There are difficult times. We have an enemy out there who is trying to uh, destroy our walk with God. And, And by the way, can we overcome that enemy on our own power? No, that's why the Bible said, Greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. So, again, everything that brought us out, 
uh, of, of our Egypt, if you will, even as they traveled through the wilderness, who did they have to depend on for their food? For their water. In fact, they had to depend on God for what? Everything they had. And if we're going to be overcomers, we have to depend upon God as well in this world. We talked about the heavenly manna they had, but also understand we also enjoy heavenly manna through Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. We're just going to read it tonight and move on from that, okay? Anybody got that? Want to read it? Thank you, Dan. Uh, if you were here last week, we were talking about this. And this was a, a festival, the uh, Feast of Booths or the Feast of Ingathering, uh, that the Jews celebrated. And when did they begin to celebrate it? In the Old or New Testament? In the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, uh, under the uh, what we call the Pentateuch area of the, of the Bible. And, uh, but now they're doing it even in the New Testament. And Jesus comes to that festival about midway through it. And on the last day, we talked about it last week, how he stood there. And he says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus takes this festival and connects it to who? To God, but to himself, right? Now, Diane, if you don't mind, we had a little conversation last Wednesday after church for a moment. And you made a wonderful comment to me privately. How about the, the fact of the matter was, the Jews missed it. And they simply missed the spiritual significance of what Christ was trying to get across and what God was trying to get across to them. And so it's interesting. Certainly this was a festival, uh, one of several, that the Jews would have celebrate. And I mentioned last week there were three that they were required, every male Jew was required to return to Jerusalem. But nonetheless, all of these festivals were still being celebrated. But once Christ came, guess what? Say it again. They should have stopped, right? <laughs> yes. And probably, and again, uh, I can be stand to be correct on this. Uh, Jason might probably knows more about this than I do. But I would say that certainly when Jerusalem was destroyed in 870, they did stop. Uh, and I'm not sure how much they picked them up again. But again, Jesus was the fulfillment of that. So uh, we talked about that water and the rock. They would pour that water on for seven, uh, seven days. And the eighth day they would pray for rain. And certainly they would need rain. But that, what they forgot and what they were trying to admit, what they missed, they needed something more than physical water. They needed what? Spiritual. They needed living water. And they simply didn't have Psalm 78, verse 16. Who did that? Who did that? It was God. Of course, the psalmist is referring back to the time of the Exodus. 
Of course, we know that the first time God asked Moses to smite that rock. But at any rate, that water came from that smitten rock. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 3 and 4. So what's Paul doing here? What's he doing? He's linking what happened in, in the exit to who? To Jesus Christ. They all drank from that spiritual rock. And Paul is very plain here. He says that rock was who? It was Christ. It was Christ. And certainly we, we've read of the many miracles that sustained the Israelites as they traveled through the desert. And we know that God provided spiritual food in the form of manna that came out of heaven. And it's interesting, Paul calls it, if you will, spiritual because it was what God had provided for them. Now, my question would be is this. Had God not provided for them during that 40 years, what would have happened to them? They'd have died. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, There's no uh, Walmarts or or, uh, Kroger out there. They would have died. God had to sustain them. And Paul says his spiritual. But also, he talked about the spiritual drink. And he connected it to the water that Moses got from the rock. And again, now think about this. It looked like that water came out of the rock. But where did it really come from? It came from God. God provided that water. And that's why Paul refers to it as a spiritual drink. Now hold on, okay? Now hold on. That physical water... And it was physical water that came out of that rock that provided them and sustained them in that journey. But if we're going to make it to heaven, we need spiritual water. And that's why Jesus, on that last day of that feast, on the eighth day, said, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of willing, of throwing Flowing water, if I can say it right. Now, again, we talked about this, I think, last week or the week before. Two different times, Moses got water from Morocco at the beginning of the journey and toward the end of their journey. And so Paul says that Jesus Christ, he, he refers to Christ as that rock who actually accompanied that people and sustained them and met their needs during that 40-year journey. So my question is this. Who meets our needs as we journey toward heaven? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, see, yes, Diane? Yes. Oh, a lot of water. Now, again, um, we can't imagine. <laughs> and Diane, as you said, I thought about when Jesus fed the 5,000. And uh, Philip said, Lord, where, where can we get enough food to feed this many? But we're not talking about 5,000, even 5,000 people here. We're talking about millions of people. But how much water did God provide? Say it again. A lot. And what else? Enough. It 
was enough. What does Jesus provide? Yeah, he sure does. So again, we see the typical significance of the Old Testament played out in the New Testament. So Jesus became the true smitten rock when he was crucified on Calvary. And of course, he gave forth that life-giving water. We also know that before his crucifixion, uh, he was persecuted. Uh, he was beaten with a, uh, with a whip, insulted. Uh, he faced a lot of unbelief from the people he came to, to speak to. But the good news is he didn't, he didn't uh, draw back. Uh, he didn't retreat. Uh, when suffering came, he took the smiting, and he took it as a chance to let living waters flow. And aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad he did? Because that living water is what gives us spiritual life today. And so our response needs to be to believe in Christ so that we might experience that living water of the Holy Spirit flowing not only in us, but also over us and drawing us to God. Also understand that for you and I, uh, there comes water out of that smitten rock in the person of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus talked about that. We mentioned it last week in John chapter 7. And the Holy Spirit refreshes our souls. He draws us toward Christ. He prays for us. And he shows Christ to us and also strengthens us that, that our inner man is strengthened day by day. Thank God for the living water. And just as the water uh, during the time of the Exodus sustained the Jews, the Israelites, that living water sustains all who trust Christ today. Uh, Psalm uh, 119, verse 105. Now think about this. The Jews had a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, one for the day and one for the night. But thank God we have God's Word. And God's Word is a lamp to our feet. God's Word is a light to our path. Now think about this. We have the Spirit of God living in us, that living water. He counsels us. He directs us, he intercedes for us, and he helps us, now think about this, to overcome the Amalekites, the enemies in our life. And our Savior Jesus told the disciples, I am with you how long? Always, even to the end of the world. We have that promise. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Matthew 28, verse 20. Amen. Even to the end of the world. And my friend, at the end of our journey, we're going to enter a land that is fairer than day, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, because God has begotten us into an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, and one that will never fade away. Let's read First Peter 1, verse 3 and 4.
Is God's word true? Absolutely true. All the time true, yes. Everything in God's word is true. And Peter says that we have an inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It doesn't fade away. And who's it saved for, reserved for? For us. For us. And these examples that we've looked at, I think we can clearly see the resemblances between the story of Israel and the spiritual history of God's children in this age. So my question, all these things we talked about, is that coincidence? Yeah, it's part of God's plan. God designed this book to be that way. And it has to be inspired. There's no way man could have come up with that. And, and you can't explain it any other way unless they're inspired by God. Because it all works together. And so when we think about the history of Israel and Canaan, and again, these were the professed people of God, but it also, I think, coincides with the history of the church, the professing church in the New Testament age. Now, most of you here are students of God's Word, and I know that. And, uh, well, let me ask the question. See if you've been paying attention. Did Moses lead them into the promised land? Okay, but did Moses lead them in? No. Who did? No. I'm looking for a man here, okay? You're right. God did. Joshua did. Okay. Moses and Joshua. We know what happened. And you're right, God is the one that did it, but he used Joshua to lead them in. So the question is, we know that after Moses, the one who brought them out of Egypt, Joshua would be the one to lead them into Egypt. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So what does God tell Joshua? Well, what about Moses? He died. So Joshua, you're the man for the hour. But again, going back to what you said earlier, Philip, God said to the land which I will give you. So we know he's actually God, but he used Joshua to do that. So hold on. And let's think about this. And I, I certainly don't want to take away anything from Joshua, but was he Moses? No. But when Moses was gone, God sent a man. He prepared a man. But also understand, now by the way, I think you would agree, Moses was an extraordinary man, used of God in a mighty way. In fact, he's the only one that the Bible said God spoke with face to face. So use greatly of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy, I think at least 
I know at least once, maybe twice, uh, in the Pentateuch, Moses talks about how God will raise up a prophet like unto me. And, of course, that's Jesus Christ. And that's why in John chapter 1, when the, uh, the religious people came out of Jerusalem to see what John the Baptist was doing, John the Baptizer, they asked him one, one of the questions, they asked, are you that prophet? Because they had read that. And they knew in the latter days God would raise up a prophet like Moses. And, of course, John said, no, I'm not the one. He was talking about Jesus Christ. That's who it was. So after Jesus left this earth, and by the way, did he tell the disciples ahead of time he was going away? Sure he did. And he said, if I go away, I'll send another comforter, I mean another one like me. And he said, I won't leave you like an orphan. John 14, verse 25 and 26. So when Jesus left the earth, he sent the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we have Matthew, Mark, John. What's next? Acts. And uh, if you look at the title page of Acts, unless I miss my guess, your Bible says the Acts of who? Of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. And I don't remember what I was reading or who I was, what commentary I was reading years ago. But someone made a suggestion or made a comment that could have well have said the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right? But again, we know that God used men. And so the Holy Spirit, through the Apostles. Now think about this. Well, let me, let me kind of go back to, to Joshua for a minute. So God told Joshua, go over the river in the land I will give you. So when Joshua got there, it was a piece of cake. It was a walk in the park. I don't think so. They were enemies overcome. There were people in the land that didn't want to go out. And so think about this. The Holy Spirit through the apostles caused the Jerichos and Ais of paganism to be overthrown. And here's what is amazing. Through that ragtag bunch of men, almost the entire known world was evangelized. Good thing R.C. was alive and well back then. Good thing they had the Internet and social media, right? They didn't have any of that. And yet, they evangelized almost all of the known world. So God brought them out of Egypt through Moses. He led them into the promised land through Joshua. And now they are in the promised land. And all the 40 years that they rebelled against God and murmured and complained, now that they're in their promised land, they're going to live for God every day of their life. 
No. Judges 2, verse 17. What are they doing? They were going after other gods. You'll also read in Joshua and Judges that once Joshua and those men died off, it wasn't long, the people began to do what was right in their own eyes. Say it again. Thank you, Philip. They did. They wanted to be godly, but let us do that and be like the world. How does that work? Not in God's eyes. So now let me kind of chase a rabbit. And again, we're trying to draw a connection between what happened in the old and what went on in the new. As soon as Moses and Joshua and and those leaders died off. It wasn't long before the Israelites began to apostatize. And the same is true with the professing church. It wasn't, now we're talking about church history now tonight, and we're seeing how what took place in the Old Testament also happened in the early days of the church. It wasn't long after the death of the apostles, heresy began to corrupt the Christian profession. And just as Israel grew tired of the theocracy and demanded a human head and king because they wanted to be like the nations around them, and Phyllis, you didn't read my notes, you didn't know, but you're exactly right. So it wasn't long after the death of the apostles, the professing church became dissatisfied with a New Testament form of church government and submitted to the domination, the domination of the Pope. I am not an expert on Roman Catholicism. But if my understanding is correct, the Roman Catholic Church contends that its origin is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, approximately 30 A.D. Now think about that. The Catholic Church proclaims itself to be the church that Jesus died for. The Catholic Church claims to be the church that was established and built by the apostles. But the question I have to ask is this. Is that the true origin of the Catholic Church? And I would submit to you that even a, a quick reading of the New Testament 
reveals that the Catholic Church does not have its origin in the teaching of Jesus Christ, nor the teaching of the apostles. Help me out here. Where in the New Testament do you find the papacy mentioned? What? You don't. Where in the New Testament are we told to worship Mary? We are not. In fact, if you read Mary's song in Luke's Gospel, she admits she needs a Savior. Yeah. Where in the New Testament do you read the Immaculate Conception of Mary? You don't. So where did it come from? I'm glad you asked. We'll be there in a minute. Where in the New Testament do you read of the perpetual virginity of Mary? You don't. Where in the New Testament do you read of the assumption of Mary? You don't. Where in the New Testament does it say that Mary is the co-redemptrix? doesn't. Where in the New Testament are we told to petition saints in heaven for their prayers? You don't. Now, you remember the time, and I know you do when I tell you this, when Paul and Silas went to Lister and Derby. Paul did some miracles, and the miracles happened, and they wanted to worship Paul. What did Paul say? Don't do that. We're just men like you. Where in the New Testament do you read of apostolic succession? You don't. Now, by the way, this is free. To be a true apostle, you had to have seen the living Christ. What does that tell you? There's no. You can't be an apostle today. Not in that order. Where in the New Testament do we read of the ordinances functioning as sacraments? Come on, folks, get the pattern here. You don't. Where in the New Testament 
do you read of infant baptism? You don't. Say it what? That's true. Where in the New Testament do we read of confessing our sins to a priest? It's Jesus, but we don't read anywhere else. Oh, here's one. Where in the New Testament do we read of purgatory? You don't. Where in the New Testament do we read of indulgences? You don't. Where in the New Testament do we read of the equal authority of the church tradition and scriptures? You don't. In fact, what was one of the problems the Pharisees had? They they made their own they had their own traditions. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, those traditions had just as much authority as God's word. Was that, was that true? Oh, I think they got to the point they had more, absolutely. But it wasn't right. And we don't read of it in the New Testament. So I look at all of those now, and by the way, I, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, purgatory is mentioned in one of the books that the Catholics include in their Old Testament. Uh, but it's not in written, I mean, it's not in the uh, other books that's included because uh, scholars know there's mistakes in that book. And that's why those books are not included in our Bible uh, because they're not without error. But anyway, here's my question. If the origin of the Catholic Church is not in the teaching of what Jesus and his apostles that we read it in the New Testament, where did it come from? For the first 280 years of Christian history, Christianity was banned by the Roman Empire. And of course, those were days of terrible persecution. But all this changed... After the conversion, and I use that loosely, of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Constantine provided religious toleration with the Edict of Milan in A.D. 313. And what that did, it effectively lifted the ban on Christianity. In A.D. 325, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea. And his goal was to unify Christianity. But he had another motive for that, because Constantine envisioned that Christianity, as a religion, would unite the Roman Empire. And by the way, by A.D. 325, the Roman Empire was beginning to fall apart. And Constantine thought, well, if I can get this Christian thing united, 
it will unite the empire. Well, it didn't work. But if you think that this lifting of the ban of Christianity and promoting it would be a positive thing for the church, the Christian church, the results were anything but positive. Now, I, I mentioned a moment ago Constantine's quote-unquote conversion. But Constantine refused to fully embrace the Christian faith. Now, remember, he's the emperor. And so he continued many of his pagan beliefs and practices. So the Christian church that Constantine and his successor promoted the church progressed became a mixture of true Christianity and Roman paganism. Absolutely. Oh, and most of the Roman Catholic beliefs and practices regarding Mary are completely absent from the Bible. Now, was Mary a virgin? Absolutely. Is she be blessed among women? Absolutely. Is she God? No. Is she a co-redeemer? No. So, most of what they believe about Mary and practice about Mary are absent from God's Word. So, where did it come from? And we can't say for sure, but when we see what's going on here, this Roman Catholic view of Mary has a whole lot in common with the Isis mother goddess religion of Egypt than it does with anything taught in the New Testament. And of course, that religion worshiped their mother god. Also, church history tells us, the first hint of Catholic Mariology appeared in the writings of Origen. And Origen lived in Alexandria, Egypt, which was the focal part, point of Isis worship. Think about that. So we're seeing a mixture of paganism and Christianity. The Roman Catholics teach that when the priest administers the Lord's Supper, communion, that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. And that the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. And that is not taught in the Bible. But we do know that there were several ancient pagan religions that were extremely popular in the Roman Empire that had some form of theopagy, which is the eating of one's God, 
as part of their rituals. Now, one cult that was sort of a in competition against the church in the early days was Mithraism. And in their worship, they would sacrifice a bull. And part of their worship was to eat part of that bull. And in their carvings in stone, they would have, have an etching of the bull, I think a snake and something else, one eating the flesh of the bull, one drinking the blood of the bull. So where did it come from? I mentioned earlier, Roman Catholicism has saints that somebody you can pray to in order to gain a certain blessing. And each saint has their own, I don't know, group of blessings they can give you. St. Francis of Assisi was the patron of the saint of animals. And I don't know exactly how many patron, uh, patron saints there are, but there's some of healing, of comfort. But where are they taught in the scriptures? They're not. They are simply not taught. When Paul went to Mars Hill and he preached there, What's one thing that he noticed that he mentions as he looked around? Do what? But what do you see that? All these gods. And the unknown God. So the Romans had a pantheon of gods. They had a God of love, a God of peace, a God of war, a God of strength. A God of wisdom. And the Catholic Church has saints who are in charge over each of these areas and many other categories. A lot of Roman cities had a God specific for that city. And the Catholic Church provides patron saints considering them as heavenly advocate of a nation, a place, a craft, activity, a class, a clan, family, a person, and for cities. And we know that in the Roman church, the Roman bishop is the vicar of Christ. In other words, he is the supreme leader of the Christian church. Where do you read that? In God's Word. You don't. So where did it come from? Well, church history tells us that the supremacy of the Roman bishop, the papacy, It came about, it was created with the support of the Roman emperors. Now think about this. A Roman emperor would consider to be who? 
a God. Supreme. Now what's interesting is church history tells us that most other bishops and most other Christians resisted the idea of a Roman bishop being supreme. They didn't want it. They couldn't find it in the scriptures. But the Roman bishop eventually rose to supremacy again because of the power and the influence of Roman emperors. Only a few examples that we're giving tonight. But I want you to know the Roman Catholic Church denies the pagan origin of its beliefs and its practices. And what they do, the Catholic Church disguises its pagan beliefs under layers of complicated theology along with church tradition. I'll never forget, it's been quite a few years ago now, and boy how naive I was. I was a young Christian, and I, I really thought that everybody, everybody who claimed to be part of Christ, believed that this Bible was inspired of God. That it was in its original manuscripts, without error, God breathed. And one day, when I worked at General Motors, trying to witness to a young man that I worked with for several months, got to know pretty well. And he said to me, well, that's just a book written by men. I said, who told you that? He said, well, I grew up Catholic, and that's what they teach us in the Catholic schools. It's a good book, but it's not infallible. Folks, how many know that's blasphemy? But I understand something. In Roman Catholicism, they recognize that many of their beliefs, many things they practice are not found in Scripture. And because it's not found in Scripture... That's why they are forced to deny the authority of God's Word. So it's not the God's Word that has the authority. They deny the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And so for the Catholic Church, guess what the divine authority is? It's the Church. It's the Pope. And so I look at what happened after the apostles died off. And the origin of the Catholic Church is really a tragic compromise of Christianity with the pagan religions that surround it. And a lot of what happened was this. Instead of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
purely, and converting the pagans, the Catholic Church Christianized pagan religions and they paganized Christianity. Say what now? They did water it down. And when they blurred the differences and erased the distinctions, the Catholic Church made itself attractive to the people of the Roman Empire. And one result, the Catholic Church became the supreme religion in Rome, in the Roman world, for centuries. But another result was the most dominant form of Christianity apostatized from the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the true proclamation of God's word. And my friend, it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. We see that happening in churches today. Churches today who are saying that this book is outdated. Churches today who are trying to get rid of the things that make us different. Churches today who are trying to blur the difference and erase the distinctions. Because there are many churches today who are trying to make themselves attractive to worldly people. My friend, Jesus died for sinners. But we cannot and we must not water down the Word of God. We must not blur the differences. We must not erase the distinctions. Jesus has come out from among them, and we must continue to do that. But the sad thing is what we saw in the Old Testament, soon after the men like Joshua and Moses and those people died away, the Israelites began to apostatize, and they began to mix their religion with paganism. When Elijah stood there on Mount Carmel, he told the Jews, how long will you go back and forth? How long will you play the middle ground? He said, if God is God, serve him. And if Baal is God, serve him. But don't serve them both. Make a choice in your life. Second Timothy chapter 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. Are we living in that time? Absolutely. God revealed to Paul, Paul, that day is coming. I know we're about out of time, but I'm thinking about the time as Paul is heading back to Jerusalem for the last time. And he longed to say goodbye to the church at Ephesus. 
But because time was short, he stopped there on the coast, and they came to meet him. And Paul said, I know that when I leave, there are wolves waiting. So Paul says in so many words, I commend you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, we need to commend ourselves and our churches to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must continue to be faithful to the Word of God. And let's not be like part of the early church and part of those in Joshua's time who forsook the Lord their God. All right, let's stop there for tonight.